There we go. Always helps when I turn this thing on. Ah, well, what a Sunday. What a time in the calendar. Uh, crazy, a crazy year. It's wrapping up. Uh, I read some scary things that predictions. I, I read this article online that was like kind of running through all of the potential outcomes of the election and it went through all of the possibilities and it got to the end and it was like this has never happened before but it's also a possibility that both candidates candidates get the exact same number of electoral college votes and then you're deadlocked and he's like it's never happened before and he went but it is 2020 <laughs> and I was like no <laughs> no please don't do that to us um so, um, we are in this series, just to keep holding before us why we're looking at what we're looking at. We're in this series where we're looking at the prayers of Paul, and we're doing it for two primary reasons. Reason number one is Paul in the biblical story is unique in the revelation that he received about what the church was, and he was God's agent for spreading the church out of Judaism and into the wider world. Um, and so as we read Paul's prayers, it gives us insight into how God intends the church to function. So that's number one. And number two is as we're looking at where this church wants to go in the future, um, these passages instruct us on how best to pray for ourselves, for the church, for the church in Portland, for the church in the world, and, and what those prayers should look like to help inform us as, as we're moving forward. So this is why we're looking at, at these prayers. So we're going to look at a prayer this morning that at the end of the day, the prayer is a prayer that the church would be sanctified. So we're gonna look at sanctification and what it means to be sanctified. Um, but there's a couple of things that have been in my mind before we jump into this that, that I want to, to just mention first and, and, and then to pray. Um, so I didn't pray first service, I forgot, like, I don't know how you do it here, but we call it Remembrance Day on the 11th, Veterans, Days, Veterans Day is coming up, so this makes, for back at home, we'd call this Remembrance Sunday. So I want to make sure we take a moment and pray for people who have lost people uh, through military service, and then pray for people that are currently serving, so we'll do that. Um, but the other thing is, I just want to address, before we go further, you know, this can be a really difficult Sunday for people. Um, we, we have just got the, the call made that there's a new president being elected. And in a space like this, there's a variety of responses to what that looks like. So some people are elated with, with the result and see it as, as a good thing for the country. Some people in here are devastated and, and finding it hard. But here's the thing, we've been talking about this. We talked last week about the whole concept of hospitality and creating space for people. This needs to be a space where someone that's elated and someone that's, that's devastated can sit together in Christ. This isn't a place where it's like, you're not supposed to have that opinion and you're not supposed to have that opinion. This is supposed to be a place where we can bring people from all different walks of life together in Christ and find a common ground. And, and so we want to hold that space today. Um, but, you know, I, I, Facebook is an interesting machine. And when you're someone like me that's Scottish, that's lived in England, that's performed lots in Northern Ireland. I grew up traveling to Dubai, so I've got lots of friends out there. Mon and I lived in Israel. We, uh, we live in America. I minister in India. 
Um, so I have contacts like in my Facebook from all over the world, and it has been fascinating the last few days watching the different responses to people that people have had on Facebook. In the middle of this, you know, I woke up this morning to a friend, um, a text message from a friend saying, I'm praying for you this morning. I don't envy your role. Because um, one option as a pastor is you just don't say anything. Let's just pretend nothing happened. And, and we don't want to be that church because you've been growing through Vital Church in addressing conflict and dealing with hard stuff. And so th that would be to go back to the old way. So we, ne we need to address some things. But, but she said, you know, I I'm praying for you this morning. I've spent the last 24 hours in tears for the pain that people are feeling this morning, whether it's people that are devastated with the result or whether it's people that feel a hope. She's like, I can't stop crying. And I was like, Wow. Um, I, I have, a, like I say, a bunch of people on my Facebook, um, and, and the things that people have been posting, just to, to give us perspective, um, a, a professor that I adored at Multnomah, um, he posted, congratulations to our president-elect Joe Biden. Even though I voted for Donald Trump, it's my prayer that our country can come together now that the election's over, and that as Christians, we can come together and lift up our new president to succeed. And I was like, powerful, powerful statement. Um, another friend was messaging me yesterday, how are you doing? Very tired, very stressed. The election is killing me. Um, he says, God's in control, but this country is something I really care about. I don't want the wrong person in charge, and the anxiety that he feels over that. Um, uh, another friend, um, they're Ameri they, they live in America. She is white. He is Indian, uh, and they're married, and they have the most beautiful biracial kids. And, and uh, she posted this this morning. Got to tell my mixed-race kids this morning that our new vice president from our country is mixed-race and Indian just like them. Our kids were so surprised. It says, representation gives possibility which transforms into power for our youth. And I'm thinking, that's an amazing thing that we don't realize where someone may be excited, we may not like it. Um, is, is there some representation here that's, that's really important for some people? Um, my, you, you don't know all of my story or whatever. My stepmom is Kenyan. My brothers are half black. Um, and so I've got biracial brothers and watching their Facebooks, just the, the progress. Someone posted, how, how did they word it? I, I don't know all the names. They said, Rosa sat so Ruby could walk so that Kamala could run. And just like for them, what this means. And so, so it's not, not to, that's not to say one side is good, one side is bad, whatever. Just to say there are so many hopes and expectations in this election. Some people, for, for them, this is a season of representation, a season of excitement, um, a season that they see as, as, as progress. For some people, this is painful. It's horrible. It's the wrong situation. It's the wrong person. And it's a season of pain. Um, and we've got to be able to hold that intention. But, but here's the deal. Sanctification is what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, sanctification is, is this process of being transformed into the image and the likeness of Jesus. Um, and, and there are different ways that that happens. On one side of the spectrum, sanctification is this fun, exciting, thrilling experience where you encounter God, you encounter his word, you experience his love, and you have these moments of worship or prayer where you're just like warmed by God and you, you capture his love in a different way. And it changes who you are. And so we have these experiences that sanctify us that are really positive. On the other side of the spectrum, you have these experiences that are painful, um, and you don't get your way, and work is difficult, and finances are challenging, and you don't have the political administration that you want, and it's hard, 
and it's also sanctifying. And in both of those situations, we have the, the question that we have to ask is, am I going to pursue the posture of sanctification? So am I going to bask in the moments of joy and the encounters with God that changed me? Am I going to submit to the difficulties and pursue God in the middle of them in a way that's going to change me? Um, and so that's the question is when it comes to sanctification in the church and this prayer that we would be sanctified, are we going to posture ourselves to cooperate with God in transformation? So for some people, the last four years of administration was negatively sanctifying. They hated it and, and they're glad to be out of it. For some of you, this next four years is going to be painfully sanctifying and you're going to hate it but god is still in control and god is working and god is more concerned with our sanctification into the the likeness of jesus than anything else um, and so just just to hold that space to to acknowledge that different people are in different places but we're here to pursue the likeness of jesus in whatever form that's going to take so let, let me just pray for those two things and then we'll jump into to the passage for today um god you know my heart i hate talking about this stuff uh, this is this i'm not from here i feel like an outsider in, in many senses and i know this is so loaded and so heavy um, and so, God, we, we just hold space for people to differ. God, if there's any place in the world where people should be able to hold different ideologies and be united, it's in the church, because that's what the church does. And so, would you help us in this process to honor one another and to trust you in the middle of it? So, God, we pray right now. I mean, it's, it's a run that's been called. It's not officially declared, but we just pray for, um, we pray for the Trump administration in this season of transition, and um, that you would be blessing them and giving them clarity and confidence and humility as they walk through uh, this next three months. We pray for the Biden administration, that your presence would be on them, that you would give them wisdom to lead, um, and that as, the, as a church, we would honor scripture and pray for the people that you put an authority over us. And then um, alongside all of that, we think about uh, today, we think about people in this congregation who have lost family in wars. We think about uh, friends and loved ones that are currently serving, and whether they see battle or not, they sacrifice so much to be in the armed forces. And so we ask for your comfort on those who have lost people. We ask for your strength uh, on those who are serving and struggling. Um, and we praise you for the sacrifices that they make in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this passage this morning, we're, we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So this is the, the, the second major prayer that he prays. And so I want to read the prayer that he addresses and then jump back just a few verses to look at the context that it sits in. Um, so this is the prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So, so I mean, there's three elements in here. Um, the prayer that we would be sanctified, the prayer that we would be kept blameless, and then this declaration of confidence that God is faithful, and we'll see it through. Um, and so, it sounds like a nice prayer, like God sanctifies, make us more like Jesus, but then you always got to remember the context that he's addressing it in. So if you jump back to verse 12, let's, uh, this will be up on the screen, but, but look at what's building up to this prayer for sanctification. He says uh, in 5 verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. So there's going to be people that serve in the church whose job is to rebuke you, <laughs> sanctification is coming uh, he says hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work live in peace with each other because that's so easy 
<laughs> and so joyous. No, it's a hard sanctifying process. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everybody. Um, lots of divisive behavior and issues and hardships. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what's good for each other and for everyone else. I don't know about you, I, I think in this world we're masters at repaying back wrong for wrong. Um, it's very hard to be an agent of transformation where you absorb wrong that's done to you and you put back out love, which is what God calls us to be. Um, as he goes on into verse 16, rejoice always even when you don't have the presidential candidate you want. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, even when it feels like the world has fallen apart around about you. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. So people are going to be coming saying, this is what God is saying. This is God's word for our country, for the church. And he doesn't say, ignore all those words because they're not from the Lord. He says, some of them are not going to be. Test them. Uh, and, and make sure that they're from the Lord. Hold on to the stuff that's good. Reject all the stuff that's evil. And that's the context that he's, he, he's leading up to this prayer. Again, verse 23. So with all of that in mind, may God himself, the God of peace, like that's what we need. We need his supernatural peace at work in us. May that God sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful. And he, what a beautiful promise. Um, so this, this first prayer request, again, this is 101, just from the passage, the prayer request that we're going to be praying this week over our church. Pray that we would be sanctified. Pray that we would be made to look more like Jesus. Pray that God would use everything in our life and in the world round about us to draw us closer to him and to transform us to look more like him. Um, Paul is just such a funny person. Sometimes I wish I had the tools. I don't have the tools yet. Maybe I'll get them one day to be able to explore all Greek manuscripts that have ever been written to see if other people use the kinds of words that he uses. But Paul has this knack for just making up words uh, when he wants to say something. So in this passage, he's saying, you know, um, may God sanctify you. This translation says through and through. Some other translations say entirely or completely. But this word, I, I just think these things are funny. So just, I think Paul just does it for fun. Um, so this word completely is the word holotelos. Okay, so what he's done is he's trying to describe how he wants God to sanctify us. And so he just takes two words, none of them that really spell out what he wants, and he just kind of squishes them together. So you've got the first word holos, which is, or holos, you could say, which is the word that we get whole from. So like that he'd sanctify you wholly or completely or entirely. And he's like, well, that's not enough. Then there's this other word that Paul uses all the time, telos, which is like the end goal. So when you're talking about vision statements and mission statements and business ideals and whatever, this is like your long-term future plan and the end goal when all is done. This is the word telos. So what's it like at the end when everything is completed? And he's like, so may God sanctify you all the way through to the end of his vision. And then he's like, but that's not enough. So let's just make up a word. It's the only time it appears in the Bible. We'll just squash the two words together and give you a fuller idea of what we want, that God would sanctify us in our totality all the way to the end vision that he has for who we in the church are supposed to become. So this isn't just let's sit down and, and look a little Jesus-ish. 
This is a prayer that the church would be so changed to look like Jesus all the way through to Jesus returning and what his kingdom is supposed to look like in this world. So, so this is a big prayer um, for, for transformation. And like I said, there's these two ways that it can happen. You've got positive sanctification, which is comfortable, and we enjoy it, and we want to sit and just worship and receive revelation from God and have him changes from the inside out without it being too uncomfortable. Just get, and, and, and for a lot of people, this is right at the beginning of our faith where you experience the truth of God for the first time. And it's like, I just want it. It's so awesome. Uh, I think what we experience probably most often is this sort of negative, uncomfortable sanctification that's like life is hard. I'm in conflict with someone. Financially, we're struggling. I hate my boss. Like coronavirus, like this is negative sanctification. It's uncomfortable, but God is working in us uh, to make us into the image and likeness of Jesus. Um, and so this is a prayer that we would look more and more like Jesus all the way to his end goal. So what, what I want to do with the majority of the time, there's, there's two other prayer points in this passage that would be kept blameless and, and praise God that he can do it. So we'll touch on them very briefly at the end. But I want to spend all the time looking at sanctification, what it is, and, and what is the problem that we've inherited that makes this so difficult? Um, because we've inherited a pattern from the fallen human condition that makes us struggle in this sanctification process. So, so let's look at this. So I'm going to put up a little diagram here. If you are... Um, if you read books on spiritual formation, spiritual theology, like transformation, you'll come across this term, the sanctification gap. So if sanctification is the theological word that means us being changed to look like Jesus, the sanctification gap is the break in that happening. So you have who I really am, the real me, and all of my unchristlikeness. You have the ideal of, of how we're supposed to be as, as Christians walking in Christ-likeness. And we hear, when we read the Bible, when we uh, are at church, we're hearing the ideal being presented. And then we live with the reality of who we really are. Um, am I the right, are my hands the right way for the screen? Is it this way up there? <laughs> it's the opposite way in my thingy. I'm like back to front. Um, but we have this gap, and you all know it. When we start talking about loving other people, and you realize how unloving you are, or we talk about being generous, and you realize how stingy we are. We, when we talk about like serving and, and justice work, and we realize that that's not our thing, we're aware of that gap. Um, the issue is how we overcome it. So we all experience this sanctification gap. There's, there's a breakdown in who I am and, 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 and who I'm supposed to be. Um, and so we start to fill this gap and close this gap in various different ways. So here's a few of them. The first one, pretense. So this is, this is not hypocrisy. This is, we're giving people the benefit of the doubt. This is, there's a gap between who I am and who you perceive me to be. There's a gap between who I am and who Jesus wants me to be. So I'm going to present to you best foot forward. So I'm just going to show you all the best parts of me, and I'm going to kind of edit who you see in order to make that gap as small as possible. And we're really good at this in the church, Right? We have the argument in the car on the way in, and then you walk in the door, and it's like happy, smiley church, you know? Um, but we, we do this. It, it, it's one of the ways. Um, despair. For some people, you hear the vision of who we're supposed to be. You hear the standard that God sets. You realize that you can't line up with that, and you just despair. 
I, I'm never gonna do it. I'm a miserable sinner. I'm a failure. Uh, I can't even set foot in the church because people are gonna judge me. They're gonna hate me. Um, and, and, and we just end up in this miry murk. What a miserable person I am. Some people, and, and often this is very true of the Western church, we, we look at pragmatic solutions. So what's the quick fix that I can engage to help me look as like Jesus as possible? So I'm gonna take on this scripture memory plan, and if I do that, I'm gonna look awesome, and I'm gonna become just like Jesus. Or I'm gonna get serving, because I'm miserable at helping in the church, so I'm gonna serve, and through that, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna look just like Jesus. And we, we, we find these pragmatic, quick fix solutions to try and close this gap. Um, but for some of us, I, I like this phrase, ministry activism. This is, let's look at all the negative in my life over here, and, and we're on the balancing scale. So I'm going to get really busy for Jesus to try and weigh up that scale. So I'm going to fight for injustice. I'm going to serve the poor. I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to give, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to advocate for this cause uh, just to try and make myself feel better about how I don't line up. Um, and the last one, which when I first was introduced to this word and this concept, um, it, it ripped me open. And I think this is so true of the Western church. And it's this term, moral formation. Um, and I'm going to explain what that is. Let me, before I define moralism or moral formation, I want to just put a statement up here um, that's going to carry through what we're talking about, and it's this. We wrap our hope and our identity around the wrong things. Again, this is normal. We wrap our hope and our identity around the wrong things. In this fallen situation, we wrap it around the wrong things. So some of us, we wrap our identity around being a parent. And so then as our kids are getting older and starting to be an adult, we squash them because our identity is so wrapped up in being the parent that's needed. For some of us, we wrap our identity around our job. And so you have a job that you're in and it comes with some respect and a title and then you lose the job and you struggle because your identity was in the job. For some of us, it's a ministry role. I play this role within the church and my identity gets wrapped around being in leadership or being listened to, being heard. Um, one of the other uh, things that I, I mean that I saw this week that just stopped me in my tracks um, it, when you talk about wrapping your hope and identity in the wrong things, it said, if you are elated by this election result, then your hope is in the wrong thing. If you are devastated by this election result, then your hope is in the wrong thing. And I was just like, whoa. And then we sing that song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Um, so where is our hope in this season? Is it in him? And are we being captured by him and being transformed to look like him? Or are we being caught up in things of the world and allowing them to overshadow what Jesus wants to do in us? So we're so bad. I don't want to put it in a shameful language. This is just the, the condition that we live in. We struggle. We constantly are wrapping our hope and identity around the wrong things. Um, and so 
Here's a, a couple of words that are important that we use that are tied to this concept of wrapping identity in the wrong way, how they're expressed specifically in the church. So one of them is legalism. We're very familiar with the language of legalism. What is legalism? It's earning salvation by your works. Any attempt to earn your salvation by your works. And we are very quick to throw this word around. So if someone is like, to, to be a good Christian, like you get up in the morning and you spend like an hour at 5 a.m. in prayer and the word, we're like, oh, but you're legalistic. It's like, they may just be disciplined. Um, doesn't necessarily mean legalism. Are they trying to earn salvation by what they're doing? Or are they trying to be disciplined in their faith? We start throwing around this word. Anytime someone is disciplined or structured or rigid in their pursuit of Jesus, we label it as legalism. But here's the deal. Most of the people that we look at and we call legalists are not trying to earn their salvation. Like in this church, you're like, I'm assuming the majority of people in here know Jesus. So the issues that you're dealing with are not trying to save yourself. You're not trying to prove to yourself that Jesus has saved you. That's already happened. The issue that we deal with is moralism. And what's moralism? It's the attempt to turn yourself into a good person using your own strength. It's attempt, an attempt to live in a good, moral way outside of the power and presence of Jesus. Uh, moralism, attempts to perfect yourself and the power of the self. And I think this is what we're really bad at in the church. Um, because especially the longer you walk with Jesus, the harder this becomes. Um, to, because we, we start depending on ourselves to try and make these things happen. Let, let me read a, a scripture passage. This is Galatians chapter 3. Um, this is Paul writing to the Galatian church, verses two and three, he says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So he's talking about the salvation moment for the people in this church. Did you receive the Spirit because of what you did or by believing what you heard? The answer is, by believing what we heard. And he goes, so are you so foolish? You began by means of the Spirit. Why are you now trying to finish off the job in your flesh? So like we all go, you know, we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, the Spirit falls on us. We, we're now in this new relationship with Jesus and then we go, now it's on me to try and finish the job. That's, that's the way we live this faith. And so we're looking at this sanctification gap. There's who Jesus is, there's where I am. So Jesus brings me into his kingdom and now it's my job to get from here all the way to Christ likeness. And so then we're despairing and we're relying on pragmatic practices and, 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 and we get stuck and we're are we not looking more like Jesus? Um, because we've started by the Spirit and now we're trying to finish by the flesh. But why is this the case? So I want to look at Genesis, end of chapter two and chapter three, and just ask the question, what did we actually inherit from Adam and Eve? And how does that affect the way that we live our faith and pursue sanctification in the church? Um, and so, so we're gonna look at some inherited patterns uh, that, that we're walking in. So let's the, uh, turn to Genesis chapter two. I'm looking the very last verse in chapter two. Um, because this is setting up the story and where it's going as and it's important in understanding this. But this is the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. It says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So God's made Adam and Eve, he's put them in the garden and there's this statement, they're naked and they feel no shame. God's setting something up here. Then as, as one starts, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
And so we see this pattern at, at the beginning. I'm, I'm hopeful that you've encountered this before. Um, the first thing Satan does in this situation is he comes and he begins to sow seeds of doubt in God and his word. So he sows this question. Adam and Eve have been living an unbroken relationship with God in the garden. And all of a sudden, the serpent comes along and it goes, did God really say? And he sows this little seed of doubt. Does God mean the things that he says? And the context is like, did God really say don't eat from this tree? Because if you eat it, you'll be like God. It's like, did God really say? Does God really have your best interests at heart? And you know, it is the only tactic Satan has and he's been using it since the beginning of time. Any issue that you're dealing with in your life, anytime you see sin in your life or in the world, it all boils down to this question, did God really say? Did God really say that you need to forgive people? because they really hurt you and your anger is justified? Did God really say that, that you shouldn't steal because it's not gonna harm anyone, it's a big corporation, if you just take a little bit, like, did God really say that? Like, did God really say you're fearfully and wonderfully made? Just believe the lie that you're miserable, that you're worthless, that life is hopeless. Did God really say it's, it's all he's doing? causing us to question identity, causing us to question how much he cares for us, causing us to question the value uh, that he holds. And so we end up in this situation where he is constantly feeding us this little question that makes us doubt him and doubt his word. So if that is what happened at the fall, then sanctification looks like a process where we learn to challenge that lie and grow in trust in God and his word. And that's, that's why we study scripture. It's why we gather in the church because we're looking at this lie that the enemy is sowing. Did God really say? And come into a place where we can walk in confidence. Yes, God says this. Yes, I believe it. And I'm gonna reject anything the world or the devil throws at me because I can stand confidently on the truths that God has spoken. So when it comes to the process of sanctification, we're always wrestling against the lies that the enemy is feeding us so that we can stand on the truths that he wants to speak to us. And, and I didn't say Satan sows doubt in God's word, he sows doubt in God and God's word. So it's not just doubt about what God says, but at the end of the day, it's doubt about does God really care for us? So again, use the election situation as the illustration. There's one group of people um, going, does God really care for us? Trump is in office, does he really care for me in my situation? There's another group of people right now going, does God really care for us because why is he giving us Biden? And it's that the enemy's sown in that question, does God really care for you? God says he's in control. Does God, is God really in control? Is, someone, is something else going on? Is God out of control right now? Has God lost the plot? The enemy's sowing these seeds because he knows as soon as we take hold of that question and as soon as we take hold of that lie, it will fuel all of the division, all of the angst, all of the anger that we start exhibiting towards each other and to the world. Um, so if we want to grow in Christ-likeness, we want to grow in the sanctification process. It's a process of, of growing to, to love and trust God and then his word. Let's jump on a few verses later in, in verse 6. Um, this, this is one of the saddest scenarios for me in, in the whole of Scripture. Um, so in verse 6, the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then, and this is why I read verse 25, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Nakedness, what did it represent? They were naked and unashamed. They realized they were naked and they experienced shame. So, 
They sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. So here you've got Adam and Eve living in the garden, naked and unashamed. It's, it's both literal and figurative. So they're literally naked and then they're figuratively exposed and vulnerable to one another and to God. And so they buy into this question, the seed of doubt, they, they overstep God's boundary and then what happens? All of a sudden they're reaching for fig leaves and they're covering themselves up. And for the first time in the created order, people are covering themselves in the relationship with God and with one another. And when you have those experiences in your life where you experience shame, what's the first thing you do? You cover it up. You don't want other people to see it. Uh, then it goes on. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This part here is for me the saddest moment in all of scripture. And I think we lose sight of this because here's what's going on. Adam and Eve, up to this point, God made them. He put them in the garden and they are in this unbroken, joy-filled relationship with God. So I imagine it looks like this. They wake up one morning, they, they roll out of their grass because they don't have a bed yet. Um, and, and they roll out and it's like, what do we do today? Let's dig a hole. And so they start digging a hole in the dirt and then they hear God walking in the garden. They're like, God, look what I did. I did this thing and I called a hole. And God's like, dude, that's awesome. I love it. Try and dig a bigger one. And then he's over here and he's like, oh, I ate this fruit over here that you told us we could eat, this big yellow thing. It was so good, I called it banana. And God's like, that's a great name. I love it. Like, I love being with you. I love your creativity. Keep doing this. And every day as Adam and Eve are doing stuff, they hear God coming in the garden and they're like, God's here, let's go show them what we did today. And then this moment, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They realize they're naked, they cover themselves up. And then it says, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. They felt shame, they felt fear and they hid. And it's the first time where they're like running from him. Um, and in this beautiful moment, but the Lord called him and says, where are you? You know, some people read this verse, and when they, they read this question, it's like, where are you? What are you doing? <laughs> you know, you put your dad's voice or mom's voice or teacher's voice onto the voice of God. But it's interesting. This is not a moment where Adam and Eve sin, and then God appears in the garden, and God looks at them, and he's like, you miserable sinner. What did you do? Get out of my presence. I never want to see you again. You stink. No, he, he doesn't go there. He's like, where are you? Like, you're hiding, and I know you shouldn't be having this awesome relationship. Like, come out of hiding. Like, I, I want relationship with you. Come, let me find you. And so, where are you? Oh, I heard you were in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid. And, he's like, and God's like, so he engages a conversation. He pursues them. Well, well who told you that? Because that wasn't for me. Where did that come from? Admit it come out of hiding, show me what's going on. And it's so beautiful because we know how the story goes, it goes on and then it, like after, right after this, God's like, I, he cares about them so much. That he's like, I don't want you living in this garden, hiding from me and covering up with things that you've constructed yourself. So here, let me kill an animal. First death in scripture. Let me put some clothes together and let me clothe you. Because this is the way it's supposed to work. I want to clothe you. Not you be hiding and covering in your own ability. You come to me. I take that stuff. I clothe you. And let's walk in this together. 
So from this, you know, we have inherited from Adam and Eve this pattern. When we feel shame, we cover up. When we feel afraid, we hide. So we cover our shame, we hide out of fear, and we do it with God, and we do it with one another. So when you do something that you know you shouldn't, you look at God and you think, ah, like, I don't want to be anywhere near him. I don't want to go to church this week. I don't want to worship. I don't want to be in the Bible. I, he, he doesn't want me around. And then we look at each other and you walk into the room and you pretend everything's fine and you cover it. And even in our most intimate relationships where we're supposed to be the most vulnerable, we hide things from each other because we're scared that we'll be rejected, that we'll be, re that we'll be judged, um, that, that, that it will be shared, that we'll get hurt. Um, and so we've inherited this, this covering and hiding pattern. So we have cultivated heart habits of covering and hiding. So this is our default. Everything we're doing in life, we have developed these heart habits where we cover our shame and we hide out of fear. Uh, and, and so it, it, as you look at the world, like every person in the world is doing this, you feel insecure and you hide behind something. So you have people that are living in the world right now and they feel insecure. And so what do they do? They pursue the big high-flying job because if I can get the right title, if I can be responsible over enough people, if I can make enough money to have the big house, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be secure. I'm going to be powerful. People are going to look at me as godlike. Um, you have people out there who are insecure about who they are and they don't feel loved. So what do they do? They pursue sex and sexual conquest. So if I can just sleep with enough people, then I'll feel valuable. And, and my college roommates, our college friends and my undergrad, they're like, oh, I slept with this many people this weekend. And you're like, what? Um, but for them, it was this way of feeling valuable, feeling important, and covering up the shame and the insecurity they felt behind something that, that they felt gave them some kind of prowess that they were lacking. And so we're all doing this in the world. Whatever job, whatever identity we're, we're wrapping ourselves up in is one of the attempts that we make to cover over our shame and hide from the fear that we feel. And you know, it's it's. In many senses, this is worse when we come into the church. Whether you grow up in the church or whether you come to faith later in life, what happens is all of a sudden you realize that these things are not supposed to be done. These things are bad. All those things out there are bad. Reading your Bible, going to church, praying, tithing, serving, those things are good. So now I take, I'm one of those people, I'm broken, I, I feel insecure, I need to achieve, and if I can just achieve enough, then people are going to love me. And so you go out there and you start achieving in the world. Well, you come into the church and what happens? Well, all of a sudden, someone stands up there and they present the ideal of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You read the Bible every day, you memorize lots of scripture, you go to the prayer meetings, you serve, you give, you do mission trips, you become a pastor. And all of a sudden, you're in the church doing Christian behavior in a way that is covering up your brokenness and, and all the good things that you're doing are fueled by your sin and your fallenness. And then we wonder why you're looking at these big high profile pastors that are falling because they've never dealt with the brokenness inside. They've never taken off the covering and they've never come out of hiding in a way that lets them walk in vulnerability and nakedness like they were supposed to. And so here we find ourselves in the church and it's like, we need to be sanctified. We need to look more like Jesus. But for many of us, we basically have taken all of our fallenness and we've put in Christian clothes on it. So we're doing Christian behavior in a fallen way that reinforces our own brokenness rather than making us look more like Jesus. Now, the beautiful thing is God is gracious. Adam and Eve, they sewed a covering for themselves. It worked. <laughs> You know, they could have kept going with that and it would have been fine. Um, 
but God doesn't want us living in that way. He wants to clothe us. And so it's an invitation. Where are you? Come out of hiding. And not just with God, but with one another. So when it comes to the sanctifying process, if we've developed heart habits of covering and hiding, what does sanctification look like? It's a process of learning to come out of hiding. It's, it's a process of learning to, to walk away from fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Um, God didn't, didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And, and so it's this process uh, of taking off the, the, the fig leaves, running out from behind the bush. You know, it's, it's the silliest thing, you know, like Adam and Eve actually thought if they hid in a tree, God wouldn't find them. <laughs> just like, and isn't it silly that we're like, if I just pretend that, that I'm holy and if I just do the right things, it's going to somehow trick God into thinking I'm Christ-like enough. And I'll fool everyone else into thinking I'm the most holy person. And, but what happens is a season like this happens, where we've got coronavirus, we've got racial unrest, we've got election switching of, of dominant parties, and all of a sudden, all that stuff that's been hidden under the surface is coming to the surface. Our anger that was never resolved, our bitterness, our judgment of other people, all of these things start coming up to the surface, and we see exposed in ourselves the failure to be sanctified. And it becomes hard to keep the Christian clothes on the front. Um, but God is in a process of sanctifying us. So we, we want to pray this prayer that God would make us sanctified, that we would be sanctified. Um, but, but it's going to require that we submit to the sanctifying work that he wants to do. Um, last, last main statement here, the fall is a relational problem. We've defined for so long the fall as a sin problem. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They overstepped his boundaries and they sinned. And the problem is Jesus had to come to die for our sin because sin needs to go away. That's all true. But it's part of the story. It's a relationship problem. The problem wasn't like what happened before they ate from the tree the knowledge of good and evil. They trusted the enemy of their soul over the God who created them. It was a relationship shift. They stopped being in relationship with God, began doubting his care for them, and then turned towards something else that was being fed to them. It's a relationship problem. What, what was the, the consequence? They sow fig leaves. There's never a relational covering between them and God and a relational covering between them and each other. And then they hide together behind this bush trying to hide from God. So this hiding and covering process is a relational problem. So it's why we sing a song. We don't say, turn your eyes on Jesus and all the sin goes away. It's turn your eyes on Jesus, or it's not like work really hard to make all this and go, it's turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his face, and all the things of the world are going to grow strangely dim. It's a relational solution to a relational problem that sin lies at the core of. Shame is a relational issue. Fear is a relational issue. And God wants to transform us so that we have no shame, we have no fear, and we can walk secure in the relationship that he's given us. So notice in this prayer, as the last couple of points I said, I would just gloss over them at the end. Um, the second part of the prayer was pray that we would be kept blameless. You know, I love this. He's just prayed this big prayer for sanctification. He doesn't then say, so work your butt off to be blameless at the coming of the Lord. He doesn't say, I'm praying that you'd be sanctified. Now it's all on you. He says, let's pray that you'd be sanctified. Then may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus. This is on him. And if we're in any doubt, how does he finish it up? Let's rejoice in this. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 
It's his job to sanctify us. It's our job to come out of hiding, to bring ourselves to him, to run to Jesus, to take off the fig leaves, to jump out from behind the bush and say, God, here I am in all my mess and all my ugliness. Monica, here I am in all my mess and all my ugliness. Church, here I am in all my mess and all my ugliness. Help me to walk vulnerably, to take off these behaviors and patterns that I've put over the top of my faith. And now you can truly minister the love of Jesus into my life. Um, so this week, the invitation is that, that we would pray this over our church. Pray that we would be sanctified through and through in entirety all the way to the end of Jesus' goal. Pray that he would keep us blameless because he's faithful. And, and this is the last part of it. He is faithful. Second Timothy even though we're unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot be untrue to himself. He knows we're unfaithful, but he is faithful and he will see it through to the end. Uh, so the worship team is going to come up. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are at work in us. Thank you that you are at work in the world round about us. Thank you that we encounter you as we read the word, as we worship, as we engage with other people, that you minister hope into our life. We encounter you in a way that changes us. And thank you that you're so concerned with our sanctification that you'll also walk with us in hardship. Um, that as coronavirus locks us down, that, that you're sanctifying us, you're stripping us of things we depend on that are outside of you. For some people, you're stripping them of the job that they've wrapped their identity around. For some people, it's the money that they've wrapped their identity around. And this season, as, as political uh, landscape is shifting, Lord, for some people, they're coming out of a painfully sanctifying process into a moment where they can rejoice. For some people, they're walking through uh, a series of joy and they're about to walk into a season of sanctification. God, would you help us, regardless of where we stand on the spectrum, uh, we're all different, and you're working on us in different ways. So help us to posture ourselves to receive the transforming work that you want us to do. Help us to sit with you in the pain and the turmoil in a way that makes us more like Jesus. Help us to rest and rejoice in the moments of joy and encounter in a way that fills our heart and carries us through the pain when it comes. Lord, we want to be a church that looks just like Jesus. So would you help us to close that sanctification gap? so that your name can be exalted. Jesus, we love you. Amen.